invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Lord God, it's in you that we live and move and have our being. And I pray that you would stir up within us a spiritual hunger and thirst this morning that then can be satisfied with you. And I pray that you would help me as I preach and for each one of us, Lord, to understand and embrace the gift of mystery. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So I look forward now to having our communion rail back, and it's not the only way to do communion, but what I particularly like about it is a number of things. One, it's a kneeling posture. It's a humble posture of receiving. Two, it's coming to the table more so than, than to the clergy distributing the bread as we've been doing it. And so it kind of gets us out of the way, and it's more receiving directly from the Lord. And then I like that the rail is curved because we are a community around the table. It's like a, a family table of chairs all the way around it, kind of looking across at each other. These are some of the symbols that come along with this communion rail, and I've missed them. So I was eager to get back to that today. Um, and, and it seems fitting that, the, that we're starting the communion rail again today, and that the lectionary reading for today was from John 6, which is really a, a, a longer and protracted reflection on the Eucharist which, by the way, is the Greek word for thanksgiving. And we call the liturgy the great thanksgiving, the great Eucharist. And so I want to reflect on the significance of communion this morning from John chapter 6. <clears throat> and let me begin by sharing with you something that is uh, it's a, it's a, it's a work of an author that I love and I struggle with. It's one of the hardest things to understand, and it's the most significant because it's dealing with mystery. It was a book that I was uh, given in seminary years ago called uh, For the Life of the World by an Orthodox uh, priest and, prof and professor at St. Vladimir's Seminary called Alexander Schmemann. Alexander Schmemann wrote a book which was a reflection on the Eucharist, and his very opening sentence is this, man is what he eats. And he was quoting a German atheistic materialist philosopher named Feuerbach who thought that in making that statement, he had put away all idealistic speculations about religion and man having any more significance than the here and now. The atheist thinks we're a big accident, we just eat food until our bodies give up, we die and go back into the dirt and there's no meaning, there's no significance. Spirituality is nothing. We are merely material. And what Schmemann says is this statement, man is what he eats, far from putting away religion, was the most religious statement he could make because when you look at the creation of man, Adam and Eve, they are presented, and we, in their steps, as hungry beings. They are put into a garden, and one of the first things God says is, I give you this garden as your food. They are hungry beings that they need to eat to have sustenance. And so they are constantly working the garden and eating of it. And this is an incredible picture, and it's helpful for us. Man is a hungry being, and the world is blessed by God and given to him as his food and sustenance. And mankind is expected to be a priesthood, a chosen nation, a people in the midst of the world who are receiving the gift of God and then offering it back to him in thanksgiving, in Eucharist, in a sacrament. But it's not just this sacrament. It's a sacrament of our existence, of the whole world. But there was one fruit-bearing tree in the garden that was not food for them. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was the forbidden fruit. God did not bless that tree as food for mankind. And among the many symbols that it represents, it represented the world as 
the world for itself, not as a means to something higher, as a means to Eucharist, as a means to praise and thanksgiving to God. It was the pursuit of self and getting what would be the blessings, but without the blesser. And this is really a description of so much of our world today. Secular society is very much like that. In fact, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says this. Um, he says, not to be anxious. You, my followers, says Jesus, don't be anxious. Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So he recognizes that the fallen nature of man is to in fear and anxiety, run after provision to provide for ourselves. Instead of, in faith, trusting God to be our provider and to receive his provision and offer it back to him in thanksgiving with glad and sincere hearts. This is a picture of a, a much broader picture of Eucharist. Eucharist is a means to a greater end, which is worship of God. To just receive God's blessings isn't enough. We give it back to him in thanks. So, um, we often in this life have a disproportionate preoccupation with food and clothing and sustenance. As some of you know, my daughter and I went on a, a seven-day bicycle trip last month. We rode our bicycles from Pittsburgh to Washington, D.C., and we loaded up our bikes with camping gear. There's a trail that goes 350 miles, and we had a tent and a camp stove, and we bought those um, backcountry MREs, basically, little meals ready to eat. You pour boiling water in, stir it up, wait 10 minutes, and you have, like, beef stroganoff or something. It's kind of gross, but when you're really hungry, it works. But here's the thing that, that happened. I went into the, the REI camp store. They have a whole wall of these things. And I'm like, okay, it's Ellie and I, seven days. We're going to be burning all these calories. And the amount of food I grabbed off of that thing, it was twice, literally twice what we needed. And by the third day, we were not each eating an MRE. We were splitting one, and we were kind of sick of them. And I had so much food left over that I packed my front saddlebags that were by my front wheel and put all the extra stuff and extra water, and I actually broke a spoke on my wheel because it was so heavy. It was just disproportionate concern for food and water. And that's just a small snap, snapshot of how we are. We are worried about our provision, and God doesn't want us to be like that. He doesn't want us to have a disproportionate concern and preoccupation with food. And so, Rather than providing for ourselves, he says, seek first the kingdom. God knows you need all this stuff. Seek him first. He's, he's going to provide that, but that's not ultimately what will nourish you. That's not ultimately what you need. Now, the gospel reading today comes from John chapter 6, and it's right after Jesus has fed the 5,000. It's his kind of big um, re reveal of who he is. He's done some signs and wonders, and crowds are starting to follow him, and now he's got 5,000 men plus women plus children on a hillside and they're hungry, and he feeds them miraculously with a couple of loaves and fish. And they all recognize that he has done an incredible sign. And they resolve to make him king of Israel by force. But Jesus sneaks off into the trees of the hillside. He sends the disciples across the sea at the end of the day on a boat. And the crowd realizes how many boats there were, and that Jesus didn't get into the boat with the disciples, and, but they don't know where he is. We learn that he walks out in the middle of the night on the water and gets in the boat, and then they go to Capernaum, his kind of home, home base for his ministry around Galilee. And the next day, the, the people that are there get in some other boats that have arrived, and they go looking for him, and they find him in Capernaum. And they, they have this dialogue. When did you get here? Which, of course, is the wrong question. A better question is, how did you get here? But we know how, but they don't. 
But Jesus then starts to speak to them about the spiritual significance of what they've just experienced. You've been fed miraculously by the one who is the life giver. You have recognized that you've been given something that's impossible. 5,000 people plus, 5,000 men plus women and children got a meal, and there was so much left over, they collected 12 baskets full of the scraps. This was a miraculous sign of the one who was in their presence. And so a dialogue breaks out. In verse 26, Jesus, um, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, which of course, whatever comes next is going to be significant and profound. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me for the wrong purpose. Then he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Well, we have to work, right? I mean, that's part of life. We have to work so we have, you know, money to buy food and eat and whatever. But that, that doesn't sustain life ultimately. That, we, our bodies wear out. We get food. We eat it. On a molecular level, it, it sustains our life for a while, but our bodies wear out. It's not an eternal kind of sustenance. We need more than just to eat actual bread and drink actual water. We need a kind of nourishment that will be eternal. And Jesus is starting to speak about a spiritual thing, and they're thinking down here about a physical thing. Very common in the Gospels. Very common for us, actually. We are so physical that that's where we get caught up, and we miss the spiritual truths. And what Jesus is going to do is he's actually going to tie the two together, and he's going to break down our categories of secular and sacred, of spiritual and physical, and he's going to merge the two together, and we're going to realize all things actually have a spiritual component. That's that idea of being the priests of the whole creation, offering everything back to God in Eucharist, in Thanksgiving. A big and powerful concept, rather than simply working so I can eat my lunch after church or whatever it is, because I'm going to have to do it again the next day and the next day. And if I don't do it, I start to shrink down, literally shrivel up and cannot live physically. But I need more than that. And you need more than that. You're a hungry being. And I don't just mean for your stomach. You're hungry for more. So he says, work for the food that the Son of Man will give to you. Now, right away, do you see the tension there? Work for something, effort, but the Son of Man will give it to you. Divine. This is a tension throughout John's Gospel. The combination of human effort, human responsibility, but divine provision and sovereignty. God is providing this for you, but you have to receive it. There is something for us to do. The Reformation was really helpful in teaching us about grace, but sometimes it swings the pendulum so far over that we think there's nothing for us to do. God has done it all. We don't have anything to do. And I've said this before, and it's very helpful to remember that grace, theological grace, is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. We have work to do to receive. Now, I commend, and Jesus does, I think as well, this crowd that comes to him because when he says, don't work for food that's going to perish, work for this eternal kind of food, they ask the right question, which some of us aren't even asking. What must I do to be doing the works of God? That's a great question. Worth asking yourself. What must I do to do the works of God? And Jesus' answer is this. Believe in the one whom he sent. Our work is to believe, to trust, to, to put our weight upon Think about faith not as intellectual ascent. Think of it as sitting in that pew or that chair. You've trusted your weight to that chair. It's not crashing to the floor. You leaned into it. 
Believe in the one whom he sent. Put your weight on Jesus. Trust him for your life and for your sustenance, your daily bread, all these things. Now, food perishes because um, it just moves through our body and is temporary. But the bread of life endures eternally, it says in verse 27. Jesus is offering a kind of sustenance that goes further. He says, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. It endures to eternal life. This is a spiritual kind of sustenance that we need, even beyond when our bodies wear out. Now, um, they're, they're asking Jesus about a sign here, and this is confusing in the ESV. And so in verse uh, 30, it says, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? And it looks like they're asking him to do another sign, but they've all recognized he's just done an incredible sign, and that's why they wanted to make him king by force. So what's going on here? Well, the Greek language could be taken in the present tense, like literally, what sign are you doing? Do you do? Are you in the midst of doing that's going on? We're watching a sign happening, but we don't quite understand it. What sign are you doing? They're not saying do something more impressive than feed 5,000. They know they've just seen a sign. They're saying explain it to us. And they make a connection that's very important and again is commendable. They're seeing Jesus as potentially on par with Moses. Well, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They make the connection. They're out in a wilderness place. Here comes Jesus, the rabbi, and he feeds them with bread in the wilderness. They're not so daft as to miss the connection between Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness getting manna from heaven every single day to sustain them. And then Jesus again says, truly, truly, whatever's coming next is profound. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives. If you look at the tense, or is giving is how it could be translated. But my father is giving you the true bread from heaven. Right here, standing in front of you, talking to you. Right now. And then their answer is, is good. They say, sir, give us this bread always. Do you recognize that from John chapter 4 when Jesus said he's the living water and you'll never thirst again to the woman at the well? And she says, sir, give me this water, thinking so that I don't have to keep going back to this well and get the physical H2O in the bucket. And they're saying, sir, give us this bread, because that was awesome eating a free meal on the hillside and not having to go work for it. They're down here on the physical, and Jesus is up here saying, no, there's a spiritual component you're missing. And then but they've said, sir, give us this bread. So they've asked for it. They've pressed in, they got some information, and they pressed a little further. And then he gives a huge word. And the first of seven I am statements in John's gospel, in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am is a direct reference to the name of God. I am that I am, that he told Moses. Jesus is saying, I am the son of God. I am divine. This is God in your midst. I am able to provide for you. I, it wasn't derivative. He is God. He's revealed that here, and they recognize this. But what becomes hard is when he starts saying, it's not about the food you just ate. It's actually about believing in me. And what will happen is many of his followers will, will actually leave him and stop following because it's a hard teaching. How is it that I'm supposed to eat this man's flesh and drink his blood? How? 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 I don't get it. And they're perplexed and they're stuck on that. And Jesus is revealing that he alone can satisfy. Jesus is the true bread. Now you and I, 
We need assurances. We need encouragement in this life of faith. We need to be fed. And it's not just based on having a, a, a powerful experience in worship. It's not just based on having a feeling that, ooh, God was in this place. There has to be something more regular that we can depend upon. And our work is to receive him by faith. This is where he gives the gift of the sacrament to us. The, the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, which he instituted in the upper room, was a fulfillment of so many themes of Scripture, and it is actually nourishment for us. Now, I've got to go to our church catechism, which dates back to 1662, and the teaching dates back to the Reformation, and, and frankly, beyond that, about what the sacrament is. You see, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And then the answer goes further in the catechism. This is answer, it's question number 121. If you want to look it up in the Anglican catechism, you can go to anglicanchurch.net and download the PDF. You can read through the catechism. What is a sacrament? Outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And it goes on and says this. God gives us the sign as a means by which we receive that grace. So when we come to the holy table, when we come to Eucharist, it's not mere memorialism. It's not just remembering something. It's not an acted-out parable to go back to what Jesus once did. Yes, there is remembering, and yes, there is a bit of drama in it, but it is actually a means where we receive God's grace. He does something in it. And it says, and it's a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. What a gift this is. Because if you come to church hungry and you don't feel anything, it doesn't matter. Because by faith, you know that Jesus is feeding you and sustaining you. And sometimes you feel so blown away by the power of his presence, you could fall off the rail. Other times you're like tired and just want to go to Panera. It doesn't actually depend on us, which is such a gift. And it does give us an assurance that he's at work in our lives and present with us. And so we, as Anglicans, make a big deal about having the Eucharist every Sunday. We want to keep going back because it's such a gift and assurance for us. It really does encourage us. Now, faith is the key here. Remember the work? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Believe in the one whom he sent. So we've got to put our weight on Jesus. We've got to trust him. We have to have faith in him and believe in him. Faith is the operative thing, which in itself is a gift from God. And there's a real mystery that I'm in here. We're in the deep end of sacramental theology here, if you haven't realized that. But the Anglican Church has consistently taught for 500 years in the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. We're talking about mystery. And I ask you, do you have room in your life for mystery? Are you open to it? Or are you caught up in the cerebral side of things? I've got to explain exactly how it works. I've got to know. Bread and wine or body and blood. How does it work? No, we don't get to know that. But we can receive by faith the mystery of God. Now, the church has swung the pendulum on both sides, not the Anglican church, other denominations. Um, Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, pushed it so far out that it was merely a remembrance. And, and in some of the, the um, denominations of Christianity, it's almost like they're irritated that this John chapter 6 and the upper room is in here. Because he says, do this in remembrance of me, and they want to honor the word of Christ, but they don't want to have room for mystery, and it's just like, it doesn't fit. On the other side, it's swung so far that um, doctrines have been made to actually talk about the, the accidents and essence of substance, uh, substance and how it changes, but don't, don't go there or there. Right in the middle, the real presence of Christ, the outward and visible sign is bread and wine, which is still bread and wine after it's consecrated, 
The inward and spiritual grace is the body and blood of Christ. He is really present in it. We don't know how. It's the kind of language in John 6 and in the upper room. He took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. And they handed him bread and passed out wine and said, do this. And we do it, and he nourishes us by it. The Anglican Church has long taught this very consistently, and what a gift it is to us. Don't miss the gift because you get hung up in the sacramental theology. The outward and visible is the bread and wine. The inward and spiritual is the body and blood of Christ who is here in the realm of mystery. He is the real food that we need to sustain us. And so I began by praying, Lord, stir up our hunger and a hunger for what only you can satisfy. And he satisfies us, but then he also gives us a desire for even more. Like it's never going to run out feeding on him. It satisfies us and it makes us want more, which is such a gift. Because to just take food of, or whatever it is in this world and think you can live on that, it comes up short every time. It leaves us like unsatisfied and wanting more. In him, we are satisfied and we want more. This is spiritual food. Now, how do you receive it? How do you act, what, like, how do you receive it? That's question 122. How should you receive the sacraments? And the catechism is real clear and helpful. I should receive the sacraments by faith in Christ with repentance and thanksgiving. So we confess our sins before we go to the table and with thanksgiving, which is the word Eucharist. I'm grateful, Lord, that you've given us this sacrament. I'm grateful for the assurances that you give us. I'm grateful that you show up in the sacrament and, and feed us, that you are here with repentance and thanksgiving. Faith in Christ is necessary to receive the grace of the sacraments. You can eat bread and wine here and totally miss it because you don't have faith. And the Apostle Paul cautions against that in the letter to the Corinthians. Faith in Christ is necessary to receive the grace of the sacraments. And obedience to Christ is necessary for the benefits of the sacraments to bear fruit in my life. So faith followed by obedience. Faith and then obedience. And I come with thanksgiving and repentance. That's why it's helpful to kneel in repentance. And I'm coming, but joyfully. I'm coming with arms out to the God who feeds us and loves us. So come with a holy expectation this morning. And um, think about the early church when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2. It says that they had their meals in, in their homes and they received their food with glad and sincere hearts. They were doing Eucharist, both sacramental, like the Holy Communion type of Eucharist, and every meal they ate. They received it with glad and sincere hearts. They were being restored to the priesthood of all believers in the garden, offering the things that God had given them back to him in thanksgiving, in Eucharist, with glad and sincere hearts. And, they, and he nourishes us. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to do something very countercultural. In place of a sermon response song, we're going to have like 30 whole seconds of silence. I'm going to sit down in my chair, and we're just going to reflect for a minute. And, and I want you to do this. I want you to think about what you're thankful for and offer that thanksgiving in Eucharist, in thanksgiving back to God. And then we're going to continue with our liturgy. So let me pray, and then we're going to be still before the Lord and reflect on him as the bread that's the true bread. Lord, I have just been in the deep end of sacramental theology. This teaching has been difficult and yet so necessary. Lord, I pray that you cut through our confusion. I pray that you would lead us beyond our reason. 
I pray that you would give us an openness to the mystery of your presence here. We so desperately need you. We've come up short in every other way we've tried to satisfy our needs. And so now we come to you, the true bread. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.